What's going on, people? It's your boy DJ Aaron, alongside my brother, as always. And today's uh, show is very special because he's, I don't know if he decided he wanted to be a pallbearer today or uh, uh, if he's a coach, football coach or basketball <laughs> coach. I'm not sure, but Antonio is dressed up today. Hey, all business for our <laughs> guest today, man. I got to make sure we represent, you know. I love First impressions it. mean a lot, you know. So. <laughs> Definitely. This is the A-Square podcast. Back at it with another one. And we have some very special guests on here with us. Antonio, would you uh, like to lead us out, brother? Absolutely. Um, make sure you all like and subscribe to the channel, first and foremost. www.asquarepodcast.com. We are back with another interview. And, of course, when we we love bringing our uh, fellow doctors on. And then you, you know who comes with that. Brett, That's always, right. man. So, yep. Brett, welcome back for the A-Square Podcast, man. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a little bit. So, it's been a little it's bit. It's been a little bit, a little bit. Well, thanks for having us back on today. Today I have with me uh, Dr. Glasgow from Atlanta Gynecological Oncology. And uh, she's going to come on and join us today to talk a little bit about cervical cancer and ovarian cancer. And for me, it's a it's an important topic because, um, as you guys know, um, I lost my mom last year to ovarian. Um, so bringing up the awareness and making sure there's more education provided for everyone out there, uh, you know, for all topics. But for me, this one just hits home. Yeah, so absolutely. Happy, happy for you guys to have us, and hopefully we can – Bring some more uh, fun and education. Absolutely. And uh, just to let you guys know, if the screen at any time looks like you're frozen or somebody else is frozen <laughs> or anything, don't worry. It is uploading as yep. we go. So we're good. Don't don't stress. Don't worry about it. We're good. So before right. you introduce Ms. Glas uh, Dr. Glasgow, can we we got a surprise for both of you guys. We you do. Did, you don't even know this. You ready? What? You ready? Right, so here we go. This episode marks our 40th interview. That's right. With the A Square podcast. So I want to do something for y'all. Let me put on this hat real quick. <laughs> 40. I love it. Hey. Hey, that's hey, special. So the so thing we appreciate is, it. The thing is, is that we've had on, you know, of course, obviously, we've had on doctors, we've had on attorneys, we've had on um, professional athletes, Olympians, like pilots, we've had on so many, yes, chefs, pilots, you name matter. it. We've pretty much had everybody on here. and uh, But it definitely is an honor to uh, continue this work with you guys and uh, continuing to spread awareness as well. So thank you. And thank you. Uh, it's 44. This is 44. It's encounters. We're going to keep it going. Hey, I'm glad it's us. I'm excited. I'm not. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Brett, do you want to introduce our guest? Uh, yeah. So just uh, reintroduce real quick. Uh, again, this is uh, Dr. Michelle Glasgow from Atlantic Gynecological Oncology. She works with us here at uh, Northside Hospital. Um, and I'm just happy she's uh, able to join us today. I met her last year when we had a uh, community uh, engagement mm. and she's just amazing, easy to talk to, um, and Love. very, very demanded uh, out of uh, our patients. Like everyone just wants to see her. Good. So it's great. Good, welcome so. Ms. Glasgow. So Dr. Thank Glasgow, you. I'll turn it over <laughs> to you and the guys. Thank you for inviting me to speak with you today. I'm excited I for this podcast. Absolutely. No problem. Um, our first question that we ask everybody is, do you mind um, introducing yourself? Tell us a little bit about you, you know, where you grew up, um, what you, what got you in this field, what you like yep. doing, anything you want to let the listeners know. 
Um, so I am from New Jersey originally. Um, I did most of my training in the Northeast. Um, I was in Rhode Island for college, medical school, Brown um, University, and then at Yale for my residency training. And then I did two fellowships, um, first at Emory and then at the University of Minnesota. Um, what brought me into G1 Oncology um, was very personal. Um, my father was a general OBGYN, solo practitioner. Um, nice. He practiced in the Bronx, and he always told me that OBGYN was the absolute best field in medicine in the whole world. Um, I didn't want to believe him, but he was true. <laughs> my father always knows best. Um, yeah. And then, um, so when I was in medical school, um, as well as college, my interest in women's health um, grew, but it was largely because of his influence and seeing the, seeing just how devoted he was to his patients and um, the conditions he treated, as well as how special relationship he had. But then my grandmother had lymphoma um, and then sort of seeing her experience with her, um, her cancer, which my family, even though um, they never really clearly stated what it was. Mm -hmm. um, but then once I realized what it was and what she was experiencing, that um, drove my interest in oncology. And ultimately, in medical school, through different rotations, um, I realized that G1 oncology was really the best fit for me, um, just in terms of being able to um, care for women um, and to empower women as well wow. in the different conditions which they experience sort of across their lifespan. Um, but then also in terms of treating patients with cancer, because it is the most um, unique honor to treat patients, as well as really to become not just part of their treatment team, but also in a way like their family, um, as well as with their families, um, to treat them in their um, experiences with cancer and along their treatment journey. Um, when I am not at work, uh, what I love to do more than anything in this whole world is to spend time with my husband and my two daughters. Nice. Um, it's because of my husband that I'm here um, in Georgia. Um, I met him when I was um, at Emory, and um, we've been married for almost seven years, and we have a four and a half year old. Um, she talks about her fifth birthday every single day, <laughs> um, even it's not till June. And then we have a two year old who is just growing way too quickly um, yes. for me. So, yeah, I love it. Absolutely. That's sort of my life, that's my everything. You, you know, you brought up something that um, I've had so many conversations with people about this before, and how difficult it can be when you have a parent that's in a field and then you follow in those footsteps. Uh, I've seen a lot of tragic stories about <laughs> people trying to do that and it not really working out. One, yeah. he must be really proud of you. That's number one. But were there any trials and tribulations with that? You know, how did you, how did, how did that work out? <laughs> so I will tell you um, that the reason I didn't want to follow in his footsteps is because he was a solo practitioner, solo practitioner in general, OBGYN. Um, they're not that common anymore. Um, and essentially, he took two weeks off a year. Um, oh, wow. Jeez. All the time. Um, he would drive across the George Washington Bridge several times a day to check on his patients because um, we lived in northern Jersey, but his practice was in the Bronx. Um, and his work was his life. Um, and even when he retired, that's actually when I started to go through residency. Um, 
and then uh, fellowship training, he would ask me questions and like quiz me on everything and tell me his opinions. Um, but I wanted to have a better balance in life than I thought he did um, mm. in his profession. Um, so that's sort of, I think, one of the bigger reasons why I wanted to avoid this field. Um, but it's really like the absolute best thing. Um, I will laugh um, because, right, we'll make a joke out of it because um, I think that the same devotion that he had towards his patients, like, for example, we would be on vacation um, and he would call, like, he knew, um, like, the labor floor number by heart. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and he, so he would call the labor floor, um, even if we were in a country that was like six hours away, um, just to check on his patients, even though he had a friend who was covering for him. Um, and yeah, I, I sort of do that too. <laughs> like, like I'm even when I'm not here physically, I am here physically most of the time. <laughs> when, I, when I'm not here physically, I'm still just like kind of just checking in with my patients. Um, my office staff knows that. Um, if I'm out of town, they can still call me. Um, they can still call me. They can still send me a message just because um, I'm always here for my patients. It's like shutting it off is, is, is um, it's like you want to shut it off, but you, you, you can't. You, you don't want to shut it off, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I will say, though, I think that um, I really do when I am with my family. Um, oh, I'm good. with my family, though. Like, I, I'll shut it off until, like, the girls go to bed. Um, there you and then go. I turn it back on. Like I'll turn on my computer at like ten o'clock. Um, but like when I'm with them, that's something that I've had to learn to do over the years too. But like when I'm with them, my time is with them. Well, we, well, we we apologizing to your patients because we're still in time away from them. You know what I'm saying? So we appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, one thing I would like to know with uh, GY Oncology is: is there an age? Uh, limit or group when I guess females need to start looking for this because like we just uh, heard you know Brett lost his mom obviously to this um, but is there let's say when females turn 14 12 20 30 is there any age group where they should really start checking into this so, excuse me. that is actually an excellent question um, what I will say is that um, I'll take a step back and just talk about the ages of women whom I treat. Okay. Um, I primarily treat women in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, up to 90s even. Um, I have had younger patients who are in their, <laughs> excuse me, teenage, teenage years. Um, what I will say is that I treat, just to take a step back, um, cervical cancer, ovarian mm. cancer, uterine cancer, um, vulvar cancer, which is cancer of the labia, um, the outside of the vagina, also vaginal cancer. But patients are also referred to see me who may not have cancer, but rather a precancer, or who may have a complicated surgical history, and they may be referred to me for, for more complex surgeries. Oh. Um, in terms of screening um, because I think your question also addresses screening. It does. Unfortunately for most of the for all of the gynecologic cancers actually except cervical cancer there isn't a good screening test out there mm. and mm. especially as and, and Brett could probably speak to this too with his experience with his mom um, ovarian cancer Unfortunately, at this point in time, there isn't a good way to catch it in an early stage. 
Um, the only cancer that we can reliably screen for and either catch before it becomes cancer um, or at an early stage in the cancer where it has not spread um, beyond the starting or um, organ of origin is cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. um, the pap smear, um, which is a screening, is a screening test for cervical cancer. Um, and it's recommended that women start having pap smears performed at the age of 21. Um, and that's yearly? Um, so that's a good question. Okay. Um, it, there are different organizations out there which have produced um, different guidelines. Okay. Um, on the frequency of when you should have pap smears as well as um, sort of even what to do for um, abnormal pap smears. Mm -hmm. um, it's rec and what I will also say is the pap smear, there are two different parts um, to that test. Um, one part of it is this, what we call the cytology which is um, an examination of how the cells look under the microscope. Um, and then the second part is the HPV testing, which is a test for um, the HPV virus, which is um, an extraordinarily common virus. Um, it is a sexually transmitted virus. Um, mm -hmm. It is responsible for um, most cases of cervical cancer. So for patients, um, I, I will also say that in the past, um, it was recommended that women have pap smears every year. Um, that is no longer the case. Um, for women who are under the age of 30, so between 21 and 30, if your pap smears are normal, it's recommended that you just have the pap smear alone um, with the cytology specifically every three years. And then if the test is abnormal, then you have the HPV testing performed. Okay. Um, okay. For women who are over um, the age of 30, um, it's there more recommendations out there. Um, you can have the pap smear with the cytology plus um, the HPV testing every three to five years um, if it continues to be normal. That's what we call um, co-testing uh, when you do both at the same time. Um, there are some out there who will also, um, where recommendations out there where you can just do primary HPV testing alone. And then, of course, that frequency changes if um, if the test is abnormal and you require follow up testing. Um, so that's sort of um, cervical cancer screening in a nutshell. Um, it's gotcha. recommended at this time that if a woman has normal Pap smears, um, she can stop having um, routine Pap smear screening after the age of sixty five. After 65. Also, if a woman has had a hysterectomy, um, she's had removal of her uterus and cervix, um, and hasn't had any significant abnormal pap smears, um, and the hysterectomy is performed for a benign condition, like, for example, fibroids, um, or bleeding related to fibroids, she can stop having pap smears performed. Um, so that's cervical cancer. One more thing I'll add mm -hmm. um, in terms of cervical cancer is there's a vaccine available mm. um, to help prevent it. And I think that really just so unique um, because the only the only cancer out there that could be preventable with a vaccine is potentially um, like liver cancer related to hepatitis B. Um, but otherwise, cervical cancer is so unique. Um, and I hope that in the future we'll see the rates go down. Um, and I think we're already starting to see that somewhat um, mm -hmm. because of the vaccine, which it's really being targeted towards um, children starting at age nine to um, 
to hopefully target them before they're exposed to the HPV virus. But it has since been, I think 2018, um, it's been since approved for adults up until the age of 45. Um, so it's relatively, so it's, it's relatively new then. Um, the HPV vaccine has actually been out probably since the mid 2000s. Oh, okay. Maybe like 2006. Okay, gotcha. Um, somewhere between 2005, 2006 is I think when it first um, came out. And there have been multiple changes to the vaccine over the years. Um, yeah, there are um, more than 150 actually forms of the HPV virus. Mm. Um, and the vaccine will generally cover, won't cover all of them, um, but the wow. most high risk ones, um, as well as the lower risk ones, um, HPV 6 and 11, um, which are responsible for genital warts. Gotcha. Um, so that is um, sort of, I'd say, when women should really start to um, think about um, at least screening for cervical cancer. Um, there is no good screening test for ovarian cancer um, or uterine cancer or vulvar cancer or vaginal cancer. Um, what I could tell you a little bit, if you like, about sort of how those um, cancers present, but what I really tell women um, at all times is you really have to be aware of what's normal for you and what's not normal. Mm. Um, and if you feel that there's something that's ongoing that's not normal and is persistent, so for example, with ovarian cancer, uh, the m most common presentation is um, bloating, um, constipation, changes in bowel movements, um, sometimes nausea, um, getting full really early, and oftentimes these symptoms can be mistaken for other conditions. So um, by other providers, um, either by a primary care doctor or an ER doctor. Um, for example, um, they may think that a patient is constipated or gaining weight. Uh, and you have to have a suspicion that there's something else ongoing and that the patient should have like a CT scan. And unfortunately, um, by the time the patients um, have a scan done, as well as by the time the patients start to show these symptoms of ovarian cancer, it is spread. Yeah. Um, so I always tell women, you have to have, just to really be aware of something, something in your body is changing. Um, and also to advocate for yourselves because you may see a doctor who sort of brushes you off, unfortunately. Right. But if you have a feeling inside yourself that something is wrong, um, don't feel bad or feel guilty to get a second opinion. I always tell my patients if they're not comfortable with something, um, even if they're not comfortable with something that I recommend, there is nothing wrong with getting another opinion on some, on, on your condition. Um, and the physician you're seeing shouldn't feel bad about that either um, because you're really just trying to advocate for yourself and to make yeah, sure just, that nothing just, is being done. Sorry, Dr. Lassie. I was going to jump in real quick and say, that is exactly what we experienced with my mother. Um, what Dr. Glasgow described is exactly what we saw happening. And unfortunately, um, my mom was the kind of individual who liked to contain a lot of her medical, you know, happenings to herself. She didn't want to bother other people with what was going on with her. So by the time we we we, we knew something was going on because she had, had been experiencing the the bloating the abdominal pain and everything the change in bowel movements for a little bit um 
but when she really expressed how painful it was um, by that time when we got her to see somebody, and again, it, it had to be caught by a CT scan. Um, it was it just it had already spread um, to the point where uh, there was not much that we could really do for her, unfortunately. Um, and that's why I say that it's personal to me for a variant and cervical because it had spread to the point where the doctors weren't sure where it originated, either ovarian or cervical. Um, but if I just want to let every you know listeners know if you yourself have doubts about it, if you know someone that you've seen, you know similar symptoms, um, don't be afraid to ask questions about it um, and talk to somebody about it because, uh, like Doc, Dr. Glasgow said, it's ovarian cancer is very sneaky and very mm-hmm. hard to detect. Um, it is the fifth leading cause of. Uh, cancer-related deaths in women. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, just what Dr. Glass says, what we say out to our community uh, all the time when we're engaging in our community, you just have to know your body and mm-hmm. if something persists uh, that's strange for your body, talk to your physician about it. And if they rebuff you, talk to another physician about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So, and I think that that's, um, I'm really glad that you guys are speaking on, you know, um, having a second opinion, having, you know, the courage to do that. Cause I think mm-hmm. that that's, that's one of my biggest regrets when it comes to, uh, my mother's passing was that I just took everything that the one doctor was saying. And even though I wanted to speak to somebody else just to get, you know, have peace of mind, mm-hmm. I didn't do that because I didn't one, I didn't know how to do that. That's, mm-hmm. that's the first thing. And, but, but to hear you guys say, Hey, you know, it's perfectly okay. And it should be encouraged. You know, I feel like our listeners will really uh, appreciate yeah, it's a, that. It's really okay. Like, yeah. and I'll just speak personally. If I have a patient who has a question um, or isn't ha- or isn't like satisfied or wants more or just another opinion, I encourage it. Um, yeah. And, and what I'll say to patients is, it's, it should, you should, it, you may be a little afraid to ask for another opinion, but I wouldn't be. Um, and you can ask that doctor, um, who else would you recommend? Because we'll give you other names. Um, unfortunately, GYN oncologists, there are not a lot of us. Mm-hmm. So in the Atlanta community, I know all of them almost, um, like in all the major hospital systems. So I'll easily give patients a list. Um, and but I will also say, um, if if you get a lot of resistance, that is a red flag. Like, yeah. But yeah. you should just speak up for yourself because um, a lot of times um, you may get a second opinion and hear the same thing, right. but it will give you, yeah. I think, some peace of mind and comfort. Well, I think it's I think it's um <laughs> it's great to hear you say you know when. If somebody asks for a second opinion, you wouldn't be offended. I think yeah. that that's where the I think that's where the the nervousness came from. Me yeah. was that I felt like uh, this is a professional, and mm-hmm. I don't want to offend this person. So I I can appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I would like to um, ask, uh, you know, since these cancers are in the reproductive area, right? I think this is a big issue of. Are any of them stopping females from having kids? If they do, um, or when they do, you know, 
get over this cancer, right? They're survivors. Can they have kids after? And can you get pregnant while you're doing, you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, all these things that could happen or potential, right? So uh, I would love to hear kind of different scenarios of what you've seen, um, what you studied, or, you know, I, I know you, you're busy today. I don't know what happened today. So um, just let our listeners know. Yeah. I'm trying to help them out, you know? <laughs> so that is a really um, good and important question. Um, as I mentioned, I see women of all ages, and I do see a lot of women who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, <clears throat> um, and either have a diagnosis of pre-cancer or cancer where the treatments, I'll say the standard treatments, um, would impact their fertility. Um, what I will say is there is generally always a fertility-sparing option for the earlier stage cancers. I'll say that is a very general statement and mm. each um, patient, each cancer is a little bit um, individualized ultimately. Right. Um, so for example, um, with cervical cancer, uh, the standard treatment um, is usually a radical hysterectomy or a combination of chemotherapy or radiation. Um, which patient, um, which treatment is recommended really depends on the stage as well as the, meaning the extent of the cancer um, either in the cervix or beyond the cervix. But for patients who are very early stage, they may be either candidates for a colonization procedure, um, which is removal of a large part of the cervix, or trachelectomy, which is removal of the whole cervix. Um, but with that, they maintain their, their uteruses left in place and their ovaries, and they could um, conceive in the future. Okay. Um, there are cases, actually, of cervical cancer which are found during pregnancy. Mm. Mm. Um, and the treatment of that can be more complicated. Yeah. Um, but it is something that sometimes can be treated um, during the pregnancy as well. Um, whether it be with chemotherapy or ultimately surgery towards later in pregnancy. I will say um, for cases of any um, gynecologic malignancy, but specifically like cervical cancer or ovarian cancer, which are the ones which would be found really in pregnancy uh, more commonly, that is definitely a very multidisciplinary approach to treatment. Mm -hmm. um, where the G1 oncologists work with obstetricians, maternal fetal medicine specialists. Um, so that's just briefly cervical cancer and how it could be treated in a way to preserve fertility. Um, for uterine cancer, um, I will say that for patients who have a very early stage, um, those patients may be eligible for hormonal treatment with a progesterone, either a pill or um, the progesterone intrauterine device um, or IUD. When you, mm -hmm. can I just ask real quick, um, when you say early, like, can you, can you like specify like, you know, the differences between catching it when you say early versus yeah. a little bit later, yeah. just so for our listeners as well. Oh no, for sure. Um, so I will say early means a little something different in each cancer okay. because um, each cancer has a different system of staging. Okay, gotcha. Which describes um, not only 
For example, like in cervical cancer, the staging has a lot to do with the size of the tumor as well as the depth of invasion okay. um, into the cervix, but then also has it spread to um, like lymph nodes or other areas okay. in the pelvis. Um, but staging is just a general way of describing is the cancer where it started um, or has it spread somewhere else? Gotcha. And where? But each, each cancer has their own system. Gotcha. Um, but for, for, for what I'm describing in terms of fertility preservation, um, these patients have the earliest of early, um, where it's generally a very small cancer has not, has not spread. Gotcha. Um, has barely um, spread into um, the organ, even where it's originating. Mm. Um, I will also say that um, within, with each cancer, there are also additional pathologic risk factors, which we look at in the report. Um, once that original, that cancer is originally diagnosed, which will also impact our recommendations for treatment and for whether that patient is a candidate for fertility preserving <coughs> surgery. Um, so fertility preserving treatment, um, which may not actually come out in the staging. Mm. Um, we also use imaging um, to help determine if a patient is a, a candidate for fertility um, preserving treatment. So, for example, for uterine cancer, um, before making a final recommendation about whether a patient could be a candidate for progesterone treatment, um, I would order an MRI of the uterus to see if they see any tumor which is growing into like the muscle of the uterus, because that is a sign. That is a reason why that treatment, um, the progesterone treatment, may not um, work, as well as a PET scan or a CT scan. To evaluate for whether there's any spread to lymph nodes, which would then also indicate a higher stage. Um, and patients who have higher stages, so for example, on um, stage three where they're spread to lymph nodes, they're not candidates um, mm -hmm. for hormonal treatment. Mm -hmm. um, for I'll lastly, um, just talk about ovarian cancer and fertility preservation. Um, patients who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer, they're there are different types of ovarian cancers, um, and the, not all ovarian cancers are the same. And what distinguishes one type from the other is really how the cells look under the microscope. Um, that also impacts their prognosis and their treatment. But patients with ovarian cancer, um, many patients are eligible um, or are able to have children in, either in the future, um, but again, depending on the stage. So for example, um, there's a type of, there's a whole, I'll say classification of um, ovarian cancers, which are called germ cell tumors, which are actually, actually tend to be seen in women who are in their teens mm. uh, or um, maybe women in their early 20s. And some of these women, they'll have surgery, they'll have one of their ovaries removed. They may even need chemotherapy in the future, um, but they can conceive in the future. Okay. Um, and one last thing I'll say is sometimes women have to undergo chemotherapy during pregnancy, and that is uh, a risk and benefit yeah. Um, yeah. conversation. And again, a multidisciplinary conversation. Man, right. Um, what last thing where I'll close on that particular area is that um, whenever 
I need a patient, and I think I would. I think this applies to all G1 oncologists. We'd all say the same. Whenever I need a patient um, who is a, the childbearing years and has not completed um, childbearing, hasn't had children, and wants more children in the future, that is something that we discuss. Oh, um, and we make sure they're aware of all their options. And sometimes it also involves a referral to meet with a fertility specialist as well. Gotcha. I got you. Um, I had a, another question for you, um, which is um, we call this practice, you know, you call it a practice, uh, screenings, so on and so forth. Um, how often is it where you don't have the answer? How often is like that you have to seek, um, you know, other people to help with, you know, whatever is going on with a patient, you have to go get help with that for you. Oh, do you mean where I may um, reach? Well, do you mean where I may work with another specialist? Right, with another specialist, right. How often does something like that happen? Um, what I, I'll say, I'll give a two-part. Um, I see a lot of patients who don't have cancer in my practice. Okay. Um, mm. Who either are referred for pre-cancer, uh, which never progresses, cancer that's usually a precancer of the um, cervix or the vagina or the vulva um, but I also see patients where um, they're referred to me for surgery um, because of some medical complication and, mm -hmm. or um, or because they've had multiple previous surgeries and this upcoming surgery could be more complicated but they don't have cancer Gotcha. But they're just sent to me because of the complexity of their case. Gotcha. Um, so I'll say that I do, I feel, I don't know the exact percentage, but I do feel I see num um, a percent of patients who don't have cancer. Um, what I will also say is I, um, G1 oncology is a specialty where we work very closely with other specialties. Um, so for our um, patients who have cancer, um, do work very closely with the radiation oncologists and medical oncologists. I perform surgery and I also administer um, chemotherapy for my patients who, um, who, and they'll receive their chemotherapy in the infusion center, not in my office, but I also do work very closely with the medical oncologists. Um, I also work with other specialties, um, specifically colorectal surgery, um, urology, I work very closely with them just during different surgical procedures. And then, of course, the general OBGYNs, too. Gotcha. Um, I would like to ask, um, what's the process of this, right? So this is for both of you guys, because um, obviously I know Brett had to deal with it on the other end. So what from start to finish where you have um, a female, doesn't matter the age, but she starts to get bloating, cramps, maybe bleeding, whatever issue it is, and you find out that it is cancer, right? So what are the next steps for this individual who are going through it? And then, Brett, if you don't mind talking about kind of what are some of the things that your mom had to go through from the other side, right? Because these people are going to have spouses, kids, parents, whoever, yeah. and they might see, okay, well, the next step is they might have to lose their hair or whatever. So they can get mentally prepared for that and, and, and understand that it is okay. You know, we're going to get through this. So if you guys can co speak on uh, those scenarios. Maybe I could start briefly on how patients come to see me. Okay. Um, usually patients who present with signs and symptoms of, I'll say ovarian cancer, they almost never come to see me directly. 
Mm-hmm. Usually they're sent to see me either because um, they went to the ER and then the scan was abnormal and then they were sent to see me. Okay. Um, or they saw a GI doctor, a colorectal surgeon, and underwent imaging or colonoscopy and then were sent to see me. Or they saw their general OBGYN or their primary care doctor and then they were sent to see me. Um, once I see them, I co- and this applies to every patient and patient I see, I thoroughly review their history, perform a physical exam. Um, for ovarian cancer, <coughs> there's a tumor marker, a blood test, I'm called the CA125 level, which can be elevated in many, but not all cases of ovarian cancer. Um, but I will check that for all the patients with either confirmed ovarian cancer or suspicion. Sometimes I'll check additional markers. I'll usually order a PET scan to see exactly where, if and where it's spread. Mm-hmm. And then based on usually the imaging more, so we'll make a decision on whether uh, they're a candidate for surgery first or chemotherapy. Um, if they're candidate, if I don't think they're a surgical candidate, I'll talk to them about getting a biopsy of some sort first, um, because you always need that um, to confirm the type of cancer before starting chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a quick summary okay. um, of sort of the process. Okay. How they come to see you. Brett? So on our end, uh, the process mom went through is probably more a little bit extreme than what most go through um hers was found extremely late stage um so unfortunately she was not um available for a surgical candidate um just because of how far it had spread and just because of her age and weight by the time she she got into the um again it was was an er visit was one of the main things um but because of that uh, sorry. Huh? Um. <clears throat> you take your time, Brett, or we don't yeah. even have to discuss it. It's up to you, man. No, 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 no. I want to because it it's important for people to know. Um. But she went through uh a couple of doses of chemo. Um, because that was pretty much the only route that we had at the time. Um, so for my mom, uh, she went through the process of having a port installed on her chest so they could do the uh, the chemotherapy. Um, and I will say all the, all the doctors, all the, the nurses who saw her were fantastic with my sisters and myself being able to explain to us why they were doing what they were doing, um, what they were doing. <clears throat> and it's funny because uh, my mom's oncologist was actually uh, Dr. Glasgow's partner okay. in Atlanta, Dr. Fuhrer. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Glasgow's up here with me in the Canton, Georgia region. And so my mom lived in the Atlanta region. So that's what she saw. And it's true. Uh, what Dr. Glasgow said earlier, uh, mom's uh, case, you know, just doesn't sit with one physician. A lot of different physicians put their eyes on it and everything. And so... Um, we had a lot of information provided to us in that, um, but there's many hospital visits that we did with my mom. Um, and it's, it was tough. Like I said, it was very late stage. It was very tough, um, to see what she was going through. Um, and unfortunately for us, it kind of boiled down to just time we had left with mom 
at that point. Um, so we, we did what we could. Um, we took Dr. Shear's uh, advice on what we could and could not do and everything. And, um, and we just, we, mom, mom made the best of it too. Um, she got second opinions just like we advocated. Um, and, you know, unfortunately just the information, um, was kind of resolute. It, it, it was what it was. Um, but yeah, uh, so that was our experience with it. We went through chemotherapy, um, we prepared mom, you know, for the hair loss and everything because that is a part of it once you go through the chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's uh, unfortunately our our time was just cut so short that we didn't even get to that point with the chemo and everything. So I'm actually, that, um, you know, glad that you said that the doctors talked about what they can and can't do. Right. So that's uh-huh. good to know that, Hey, these options might be available or might not, but you have to ask kind of, you know, like what we talked about mm-hmm. earlier, ask yeah. those tough questions. And then if they yeah, can't explain it, Dr. Leslie, you can correct me. Um, cause I haven't been able to engage, uh, <laughs> since pre COVID, but, at for Northside, when a, an oncology case comes, you, you have your main oncologist, but usually that case is presented to a, a list of oncologists and then it's discussed. So um, is that still how it goes, Dr. Glasgow? Um, I'll say that not every case is... Everyone? Presented. Okay. Um, and what Brett is referring to is um, every Friday we have this um, meeting called GYN Tumor conference or a tumor board, um, it is the most amazing meeting. I'll say that I've been at many different institutions and Northside is like the best. Nice. <laughs> right. Good. Nice. It is. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, um, it is a meeting of all the GYN oncologists of all five Northside hospitals. Um, the radiation oncologists, medical oncologists will also participate. Um, the research team will also participate, um, pathologists, radiologists, um, geneticists, navigation. Uh, it's amazing. And essentially, patients' cases that are challenging are not straightforward um, because there are patients um, with GUI and cancers which are pretty straightforward where you know what to do. But if you have, I mean, you, we, as a G1 oncologist, treating G1 oncologist, has a question about a case, whether it be on the pathology report um, and what to do, or the imaging, or the patients develop the recurrence and you just don't know what the next best step is. Uh, this is a forum where you can present your patient and get the input of all the other doctors there. And so not every case is presented, but cases where there's a question. That's great. It's simply amazing. And it's That's also great. a time to identify if patients are eligible for um, a clinical trial. There's several clinical trials open at Northside. We're always having separate meetings to review which trials are um, good to open here, um, whether patients should have genetics testing. Um, based. There are certain um, scenarios where um, we already know this patient should have genetic testing, but sometimes the geneticist will hear something about the patient's family history um, or personal history of other cancers and say this patient should um, should have um, genetic testing. There's also um, the nurse navigators on 
who will also potentially identify that this is a patient whom they should reach out to to give extra support to. Gotcha. Um, so uh, to the listeners out there, we have Brett and Michelle Glasgow on from mm-hmm. Northside. Um, you ready for the hot seat, man? You can't get out of this, man. You cannot can't get, get out, out of this, Ms. Gla- Dr. Glasgow. So we need to know. It's a two-part question. We need to hear a successful, triumphant story, and then we need to hear a story that's like from hell, like that's like one of your worst patients. No names. You don't have to give any indicators, but we need to hear something from you. And this is not something that we're just, uh, uh, this is something that we talk to every doctor. <laughs> Man. We yeah. always put it out there and we always get great stories or at least some yeah. type of story. Yeah. So, but again, it doesn't have to have no <laughs> names or anything like that. Just your own personal Yeah, we ain't trying experience. to get you fired. Nothing no, like that. No, no, but we need to hear Not it. here on Nate Square. And it doesn't have to <laughs> pertain to this exact hospital or nothing. <laughs> hmm. Okay. I have a success story. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't know about that. <laughs> but, um, so a success story. I have a patient. She did not start her initial care with me. Um, she came to see me just for continued follow-up. Um, but she has ovarian cancer. And something that I wanted to mention before is I think it's extraordinarily important that when a patient is um, diagnosed with any type of cancer, uh, not just GYN cancers, any cancer, that the oncologist be very upfront um, and just state plain as day um, Mm -hmm. what the prognosis is, but then also say, this is what could happen, but this could also happen. I think it's really important um, for the patient as well as the family um, to hear that. And I've sort of been on um, the patient or family side. Um, As I mentioned, my grandmother had lymphoma, my father-in-law had brain cancer last year, and I've sort of seen both sides. And that can sometimes be hard for oncologists to do um, because we want to help people um, more than anything in the whole world. That's ultimately why we got into our specialty. Um, But it is sometimes also hard to say that we can't cure this cancer. And that, that's, and sometimes you just have to be very honest about that. Um, I will tell you that for my patients with newly diagnosed ovarian cancer, and I'm sorry, I know I'm chat. I'm being a little chat. No, no, you're good. You're, you're good. good. This is your show. This is your show, actually. We're guests. But with my patients um, who have newly diagnosed ovarian cancer, all of my patients, um, they're always afraid to come in and see me just because I'm an oncologist. Um, but I tell them that, um, this has a bad reputation, this cancer, like I acknowledge it up front, um, for two reasons. One is because um, when it's found, it's usually stage three or stage four. Uh, I've only had a handful of cases, and I've been in practice for nearly seven years here at Northside. Um, I've only had a handful of cases that are stage one or stage two. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other reason is because I have seen a large percentage of patients now, other G1 oncologists would comment on this as well, enter a complete remission after their initial treatment of chemotherapy and surgery is a combination, but the rates of recurrence of the cancer coming back are very high. Mm. Um, but I tell patients that this is a treatable cancer for many, not for all, 
um, but for many it is treatable and um, it, it even when it comes back um, and that brings me to my success story so I have a patient who was diagnosed with a stage 3 ovarian cancer in 2009 um, and it's 2023 um, she has been on multiple chemotherapy regimens but she's still living she's enjoying her she, her latest granddaughter was born a year ago. Yeah, amazing. She was here in my office that day. She couldn't see the baby because of COVID, but she pointed to her across the window. From nice. <laughs> um, and she has been on a lot of chemo regimens. Um, she has a little bit of chemo brains. She sometimes forgets things. Mm -hmm. But um, she was diagnosed with stage 3 ovarian cancer in 2009. So amazing. So I um, wow. tell, I, I'm not sure names, um, but I do no, sort yeah. of give that story to my patients as um, just to give them some hope that it could be them. Facts. That could be them. But I also do tell them, and this is like sometimes at the first or second visit, I do tell them that they could also be that visit patient who goes into complete remission. Um, and then four months later, the cancers come back um, in many, many different places. And I think that it's just important um, for them to hear that at the get go. Um, and it's something that we revisit, we revisit, right. um, because especially that first visit, they don't, they don't retain so much, um, yeah. just because it can be quite overwhelming. overwhelming. Yeah. So that's my success story. Okay. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, my last question, um, <laughs> right. for you, um, I'm sure there's a listener out there who wants to go into GY, uh, that's right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They're, they're listening right now. Yeah. And so what are some pitfalls, maybe some advice that you would give them, uh, you know, male or female is just um, something that maybe in Ivy League school you wasn't re ready for or, you know, just kind of give them a head start on this uh, path and this journey to be successful. Um, what I would say is You might even be talking to, to, to one of your kids right now. You never uh -oh, know. Yeah, you yeah. know, these, these, this episode is not going anywhere. So <laughs> 10 years, 10, 10 years down yeah. the line, you know, Hey, you might be yeah. talking to little you. <laughs> mm -hmm. My daughter, my four year old is talking about becoming a doctor. There you See? go. Um, there you go. <laughs> what I will say, I'll give three pieces of advice. Okay. Um, number one, study hard. I was not one of those students in college or medical school who could not study. My husband was one of those. Um, he's also a physician. Um, oh, okay. Who could, could just, yeah, I can do that. I have to study. <laughs> yeah. um, just study hard. Um, simply. Study for your tests. Yeah, pay attention. Go to class. Even yeah, though I know class. things have changed since I've been in college. So, like, everything's working. So. Um, the second thing I will say is don't give up. If you have decided that this is what you want to do, don't give up. Um, and I will tell you, and I make it emotional saying this, um, I think that um, I wanted, by the time I was maybe like my first year of medical school, which was 2004, um, that's when I started to really think, I want to do G1 oncology. Um, and I started to do everything I could do, research everything, um, to prepare myself for G1 oncology. Uh, and applying for it. So I was in medical school for four years, and then I went to, to OBGYN residency for four years. So like seven and a half years later, I applied for GYN Oncology Fellowship. Um, and everyone thought I would get a position. 
I did not. Um, that was heartbreaking. Um, yeah. it, was it was probably like one of the most heartbreaking things ever at that point in my life. Um, because right. I'd done so much work towards right. it. And I thought it was also humbling. Though. Um, and I thought that this wasn't going to happen. Um, and then God brought me to Atlanta. That's right. <laughs> That's there you go. Like yeah. Um, and I did my position at Emory for a year and I met my husband. Um, and that's like, look at that. I'll just say <laughs> that, um, that was part of God's plan for me. Yeah. And then I reapplied. Nice. Not many people reapply, but I really wanted this position. I wanted more than anything in this world to be geologist. And I got a position in this. Wow. Um, extremely happy that you did. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to Minnesota. My husband really wanted me to stay here. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I went to Minnesota. We did a long distance for three years. And then I finished my training and came back. Nice. Um, but what I would say is if, if this is something that you want, um, you're going to have ups and downs along that road, along that path um, to your desired profession. But just kind of keep your eyes um on the prize and stay focused and don't give up and try again if you don't get a position. Okay. So, the so, last thing oh, I will ahead, say, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Um, the last thing I will say is that, um, the road to become a physician is a long road, especially if you do a subspecialty like G1 oncology. Mm -hmm. Um, so just to illustrate, um, there's four years of college, then four years of medical school, and then four years of residency, and then three or four years after um, residency and fellowship. There are some wow. four-year training programs out there. Um, my husband and I, we use this phrase, delayed gratification. Yeah. Um, because I was in my mid-30s when I got married and then had my first child at 36 and 39. Sorry, date myself. But That's what okay. I'm saying is that, <laughs> um, it, it's a long road. But you get there. You That's get there. Right. And it's worth it. It's worth it. Um, but it is a long road. Appreciate but that. You're not alone. There's a there's a huge, amazing community of G1 oncologists out there, as well as just other subspecialists or specialists, depending what area mm -hmm. of medicine you go into. And you're not alone. It's doable. Absolutely. And I was just going to say... Um, it's gonna be tough for it's gonna be tough for them babies now. You know, you gotta now they gotta find a doctor. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's just falling like that. Hopefully, that works out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we really. I was gonna say, you know, I just want to take the time to say that you know I really appreciate the information that you've given on here today. And Brett, you know, of course, you know we've done this many a times, but the information that you guys provide is opening the doors for all those people that are out there that just, they just want to hear from doctors, you know, outside of just, you know, going to see your regular doctor. People want to know this information. So I just want to say that we really appreciate it. And thank you. Thank no you. Problem. No problem. It's been a pleasure. As, as Brett probably knows, and you can probably see, I love talking about what I do. I love it. I love my job. We can tell. Yeah. We, we can tell. <laughs> And she's, e and she's easy to talk to about it, too. That's the best part. Yeah, That's right. We appreciate it. Is there any way that if um, our listeners have any questions or um, concerns or anything, is there a way they can reach you or the hospital that you're at, maybe not you directly? Yes. Um, I don't know the process, but if anything were sent in, we could it could be forwarded maybe to my manager who could forward it to me. 
Absolutely. People know the website, man, asquarepodcast.com. You guys can reach us there, and we can forward any information uh, right over to these guys to get you whatever you need. So that's what we got. Gotcha. Uh, and yeah. anything else, Brett? Uh, no, I was just going to say I, I always love coming on here with you guys. I appreciate you guys having us again. Sure. And, you know, we've done – you guys just said we've done this multiple times before in the past, but, you know, this one was – more personal and i'm just glad we're here to to share the the information and the experiences and everything um you know it, it almost kind of harks back to our first podcast that we did together uh, yes. about breast cancer, breast cancer and everything yeah. so um just always guys thanks for having me absolutely no problem can't wait to do the next one appreciate it absolutely